can't be that difficult, can it? <laughs> ben Elton's doing it. What's going on at the Stables Theatre? I'm Stuart Bailey, and I've been chatting to Ben Randall, whose life in the spotlight started out when he was just 18, with an ambition to be a stand-up comic in a pub in Bexhill. He'll admit that first gig didn't go down that well, but he ploughed on regardless, and in his time he scored some major success, not just in his own right as a stand-up comic, but as a writer for other comedians and for children's television. But Ben's career has scaled new heights since becoming chair of PAG, the Stables Programme Advisory Group. And I caught up with him recently to talk about not just what's coming up at the Stables in the next three months, but about his life, enjoying, or perhaps enduring, the smell of the grease paint and the roar of the crowd. We chatted in the bar of the theatre, and the background noise is the hum of the ice cream fridge, which I hope doesn't spoil your listening pleasure too much. That's what we got you the programme supremo, couldn't we? I guess you could. <laughs> um, the What's On from May to August has just come out. Um, if we're recording this for Radio 4, we describe it as an eclectic mix. For the Radio 2 listener, it's something for everyone. Um, <laughs> but there really is, quite literally, something for everyone. Music, drama, uh, history, yeah. local culture, it's all there. Well, I hope so, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the aim, really. Um, it's always difficult... Uh, to sort of decide what the right things to do because we want to make sure that everyone's as you said got something for everyone really um, and we've got such a different different kinds of groups that really come to the stables you know that, and everybody needs to be entertained and it's their theatre it's for the public really for, for everyone in the, in the, in the community I, I think it's also important to talk about what PAG is because obviously um, being the chair of PAG but what is PAG and basically it's a group of us a group of people that um, have got involved with the stables and what we do is we try and choose the best shows to be put on um, over the each year and we do that by sort of having directors interviews which we've got coming up soon so through that we people sort of offer their their services as directors and we sort of work out who would be the best director for creating such a, a good program and given the the limited number of slots, I, would, I can imagine that the demand is, is way outstripping the supply uh, for, for shows to appear here. That, that is part of the problem, really, yeah. I mean, obviously, we can only do so many a year, um, and we get lots of different people coming through and wanting to do lots of different productions. So, But it's good for us, because then we've got a real variation of people to choose from. So, you know, you're not sticking with one kind of thing. You've got lots of different ideas and lots of different feels and lots of different shows that we can, we can present. But just running through what's coming up, um, one that really is it's not a show as such, but Changing Faces, where you've got the, um, the students from the college coming mm. in to, to demonstrate makeup technique. Yeah. It's a, a really original one. And then we've got some of the big ones, like Breaking the Code, which yeah. about Alan Turing, and has that local connection as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it's that it is that juxtapose, really. Yeah, you've got you, you've got students coming in, sort of showing what they can do, trying stuff out for themselves, um, and getting involved in the theatre environment. Um, and who knows where that could lead? You know, because mm. obviously makeup's a, a big thing in 
in yep. theatre. Um, and then obviously we've got Breaking the Code, which is happening in, in June. Uh, they're rehearsing at the moment. And it's a well-established play, uh, but it's kind of ideal, I think, for, for much of the audience here. You know, it's, it's a really interesting play. There's really interesting lots of different um, levels. And as you said, there is a local interest there. So, you know. Born, well, not born, but certainly brought up in Mays Hill. Yeah. Yeah, up yeah. in Mays Hill. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, incredible that we have that. Yeah, it's right, wonderful. Right here. Yeah. Um, and that, I'm going to say this the wrong way around because I always do. Home I'm Darling. Yeah. That looks really interesting. Yeah, it's, I, I think it'll be a really, really interesting piece, um, sort of different from Breaking the Code, but it's a fantastic show. There's lots of work going into it it's going to be very particular very stylized we've got sort of some really interesting people supporting the show too so we've got sort of uh sort of someone that's involved in the west end who um is helping to design the clothes um because it's so particular it's all set in 1950s so <laughs> we've and there's some some should we say some stage magic that will take place mm. on it it'll be it'll be amazing good yeah. And then just things like Vivaldi and Greg by Hastings Philharmonic Orchestra yeah. are, are, are there. Well, Ploughing the sea salt, that sound, yeah, we'd, we'd book some tickets for that. That sounds... Yeah. That sounds, and of course, Chris New, um, who I've done now done a couple of interviews with, yeah. he's got his second of his, of his trilogy yeah. coming out very soon. So, yeah, a hugely diverse range of material. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, in fairness, I mean... We, from the PAG point of view, we, we choose the, the Stables productions and then there's other, the other things that come in is more Neil is involved in it and brings those people in. Um, but obviously he has a whole dialogue with everyone and explains what's going on. But I think in the future, he's, the plan is to, to sort of like subsume that into the PAG so mm-hmm. everyone's involved within that. But it really does create this sort of eclectic mix of, of, mm-hmm. of entertainment. You, know, you never know what's going to happen next week. <laughs> and so. yeah, there's always something different to see and something different to enjoy. As a town, we're really quite lucky not just to have the stables, but also to have. I was at the White Rock on Saturday seeing Blood Brothers, and we'd have some good quality material available mm. to us in this yeah. in this little corner of the country. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, I, yeah, again, it's very interesting. Blood Brothers is an outstanding show, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, there are professional productions that go on at the White Rock, and you can go and see them, and I'm sure you agree, that you come and see the shows here, and you think, kind of think, well, do you know what? It's not far off. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I mean, White Rock's got a bigger stage. Hmm. It can do more with it. But the actual people on stage, and that, that was one of the things that struck me on Saturday night. I thought, actually, you know, it's difficult to fault that Stables does not come across like an amateur theatre company no mm. no I th- I, I, and I think it's it, it, I think it's the ethos it's like all we expect from people is that they just do their best yep. and it doesn't matter what level that is but because people just do their best it's that I think it creates this atmosphere mm. and it creates this almost like magic. It really is like, you know, you watch a show here and people are so enthused on stage and people are so enthused in the audience that it, it creates this really positive sort yeah. of experience. And, and that's the thing about theatre, isn't it? Is that it, it's not just the people on stage, it's the audience and it's the, the meshing of the two energies that really create theatre. And if everyone's positive and enjoying it, 
it becomes every production is different from day to day because of the audience and how, how you get the feedback and, and how they feed off the audience to, on, on stage. So. And interestingly, Chris knew was saying that, that on the, the three-night run for Dig, he was making sort of changes between each show given the response and given the feedback he'd, he'd got from the audience. But then I suppose in a one-man show, it's a bit easier to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's much, much easier, yeah. Uh, but that's, that's, I mean, that's a sign of someone that's really great at their craft and, you know, really listen to the audience. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think every performance is, is always slightly different. Mm. You know, even, obviously, maybe potentially the, the dialogue doesn't change, but you can see timing, you mm. can see people... There's a bigger laugh tonight, so you just pause for a moment, you know. And and sometimes it's that you can sometimes see that where there is a laugh and there's never been a laugh there before. You can see actors sort of go, oh, "What? Oh. What did we do there? <laughs> yeah, what happened there?" Um, but that's what's wonderful about it, you know. That's, and and I think you know that's what the that's what the stables does really well. It's that enthusiasm from the from the audience and um, the enthusiasm from the performers. Talking about waiting for a laugh. And judging the laughs. I mean, that's your background, isn't it? it was was comedy and stand-up? It was, yeah, yeah. So I, um, that was my first sort of, I guess, furore into into um, entertainment. Really, um, my my parents were always involved in in amateur dramatics, um, and I kind of got the taste for it like that. Um, and then being dragged along to rehearsals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. And um, I was. I used to watch Saturday Night Live on television, you know, with Ben Elton and all that kind of stuff. And I was a great admirer of, of those comics. And I just thought, wow, yeah, it can't be that difficult, can it? <laughs> ben Elton's doing it. Um, and <laughs> so I, um, I did my first gig in Bexhill uh, at The Entertainer, which is, I don't think, it's not called The Entertainer any, any, anymore, but the, the pub's still there. I don't know what it's called, but um, I did the gig. Uh, I, I think I was 18 um, and completely died. <laughs> which was brilliant but that's how you learn that's how you absolutely learn and I then soon after that I sort of moved up to London and obviously the circuit opened up and suddenly you had all these tryout nights and when I was gigging it was you looked at the Time Out magazine and then you'd look through the back of it and you'd look for the numbers and come and try out and you'd phone them up and you'd say can I come and try out and you'd go there and you'd turn up and then you never quite knew what you're going to get. Yeah, you know, um, some of them were quite awful. I mean, some <laughs> some some venues were absolutely awful. They, were, they used to. I won't say the venue, but one compare because obviously when you first try out, you're quite you know, generally people are quite young and they're very nervous. And um, the compare used to come and go. Look, sorry, don't need to be so nervous. So, so what's what's your first what's your first joke? Do it to me. Tell me how you're going to perform it. And obviously, when you're first doing comedy, you've got everything lined up. You can't go off and script you, yeah, you've got to stay on your script because otherwise you lose your place and you don't know he's like so what's your first gag and they tell your first gag and you go right yeah no, that's good you want to start with that that's an excellent gag and if it's a good gag you go on stage just before you introduce <laughs> you do the gag and then introduce you <laughs> <laughs> wonderful <laughs> yeah um, so but you never quite knew what you were going to get but, but going back to that first uh, first gig in Bexhill mm. How did you prepare for it? How did you actually feel? Because as, as a stand-up comedian, you don't have anywhere to hide. There's no, there's no band that you can blame for the, the mistakes. It's, it, it's, it's all you. If, if people don't laugh, then it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, it is. Um, I think it was ignorance, really, mm. and naivety. I just thought, oh, you know, it's, it's easy to make people laugh, isn't it, right? Because that's, that's what we and, and And then you discover it's not. Because I've been doing that with my mates in yeah, school, exactly. whatever, yeah. pubs, yeah. whatever. Um, and um, it's not. You know, people sort of look at you and go, hmm, that's not funny, is it? Because um, it all needs context, mm. and, and that's how you learn. You, you realise you have to put all your jokes into context, and... I think there's a difference between comics that are just funny people and they can deliver literally an instruction from uh, a list of, from Ikea yep. uh, or you have to work really hard and have good gags. There's uh, nothing funny about a list of instructions from Ikea. No, that's true. <laughs> um, and I'd like to say I fall into the category of the people being able to read the list of <laughs> instructions from Ikea. I have to work really hard to have good yep. gags to be funny. And... It, but it was great because it suddenly exposed me to see how difficult it was and how hard it was. And then you start watching comics in a different way and mm. you realise, wow, how well-crafted things are um, and how they've timed it and, and what they've, they've really worked out what works and what doesn't. And they've spent years, months, years and years and years trying to hone this skill until they've got a great act. And, that, and that's kind of what they say. And then obviously they go on television and their act's gone and they have yeah. to start again. But that's what's so great about, you know, these comics that are on, on television mm. every week. They've got... Chews up so much material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read Victoria Wood's biography, and that part was one of the things that you know, she worried about so much, that she could go on tour and you spend however long it was writing the material for a tour. Mm. But then she did six episodes of As Seen in TV and a whole year's worth of writing had been yeah, consumed. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's why she was so clever, because... You know, most of the ninety-five percent of the stuff she did was brilliant, wasn't it? It's really it was. Funny, yeah. you know? But when you're writing comedy, um, because sometimes something that's written down in a piece of paper doesn't look funny, but the way it's delivered, be it intonation, be it facial expression, be it context, mm. makes it funny. So how do you know when something, when you write something down? And it's there in black and white, and it's just a sentence. How do you know that's going to be a that's a joke? You don't. That's the <laughs> thing. You don't. Um, I think sometimes you know. You know, like I can imagine if you know. You you know sometimes you hear a song, mm. and you think they must have sat and written that song, and in the studio they just went, I know that's going to be a hit. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. You just know. and sometimes every now and then you write a gag and you go. Yeah, that's, that's, that's funny. That's the that, one. That's going to hit. That's going to be great. But the, often you don't. And the, the mechanism is often you go on stage and you've got your script and then you do your gags and then, I don't know, 30% of them work and then the other 70% don't. So you get rid of that 70% and you work and you build on the 30%. Mm-hmm. So the next time you find, you get another 30%. So eventually you get this, after a, a significant amount of time, you've got 100% of these gags that you know will work potentially work you know every night is different sometimes they don't work but you know you've got a real hard core of, mm-hmm. of stuff and then once you've got a hard core of an act then you can you can deviate you can start playing with the audience because you know you can start talking about stuff and making jokes of you know of the day or what's happening in the in the club um and then if it doesn't work or it's sort of stopped you just go back mm-hmm. to the the, 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 the jokes that you know really work so you get them all back and is that experience and confidence that allows you to be able to do that I, I think so I've never had the experience or the confidence <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah 
But I, th- I think, yeah, it is. It is. And also, it's interesting what you asked about what, what works. And you can't lie on stage. You have to find something you find funny. And if, you, if it's not genuinely funny to you, I don't think people, they, re- they realise that it's not true to you mm. as a person. So you've got to be really honest about who you are. You can't do someone else's gags. I think people see through you. Mm. You stand up and, and you are, you know, you are pretty naked. You're standing there and people look at you and, you know, if you're, if you're kind of trying to be someone that you're not, that that's, that's where you make a mistake. And I'll, I'll be honest, the first sort of year of, of my comedy was like that. I was trying to be an act and I didn't, I didn't quite know what I was or what I was trying to mm-hmm. do. Um, and then eventually you find your feet and you, and in the end, you've died so many times, you don't care anymore. Mm. Um, well, that's much my experience, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you just go out and you just do it. You go out and do it and, and you're quite relaxed about it. And, and the more relaxed you become about it, the better you are. Yeah. Does life experience count? Because you said your first gig, you were 18, you were in Bexhill. Mm. You, with the best role in the world, at 18, you not had a huge no. amount of life experience. And no. good comedy, to me, has got that level of experience, that sort of you know, hard-worn... It comes from experience. Life. Yeah, I, I agree, life. yeah. I think, I think it's very difficult to be young. I think if you look young as well mm. and your audience is, say, more mature, um, I think it's difficult to be funny because of, to those people, especially if you're doing uh, observational comedy, because they're sort of sitting there going, well, what do you know about this? Yeah. You know, um, And it does get easier. As I, as I got older, it got easier. Which goes back to what you were saying about being too, too to yourself. There are some great comics out there that are 18. Mm. I'm, I'm not trying to say that 18-year-old comics aren't great, mm. but, but there are some brilliant ones. But in my experience, I wasn't, I wasn't experienced yeah. enough and I didn't have enough of a character of a person yep. to understand who I was. To be. So how, I mean, because you actually, you were a full-time comedian. Yeah, yeah. For, for, for Peter. Yeah. I mean, how, how long, how long did you do that for? And and what is the life of a full time comedian? I don't know how to answer that. That I was. It's a strange life because what you end up doing is you end up comparing places because mm. that's how you get your bread and butter because you know that's there every week, yeah. you know. And then and that what then what happens is that you have comics to come to your club, and that comic then turns around and goes, "Well, I run a club down to. Do you want to come and?" do my gig so it becomes this this sort of circle really uh, it was a sort of late 90s into the 2000s avalon was a big company that had a lot of comics under their under their contract so um i was never signed to a, uh, an agency so it's a, i was always looking for my own work there's a big university circuit all those kinds of things which were always good gigs you know because you know they were always very interesting so you actually you're looking for work you're writing your material, you're performing it. So, yeah, yeah it sounds like a fairly full-on... Yeah, you become hugely neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I worked in theatre as well in the West End, so I always had work to fall back on unless you've really established yourself and you know you've got lots of work coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be very... Because you've got rent to pay, you've got all these different yeah. things to pay. So it's good to have something to fall back on if you need it. And going back to context, but, but, but context of the venue, I suppose, if you're going into an audience 
So the, the, the pub in Bexhill that night, mm. for example, perhaps didn't expect a comedian. Perhaps they were waiting for musicians to come on. If you then go into a comedy club where people are waiting to hear comedy, are, is that audience more receptive? I was once at a business dinner, mm. which had been quite serious, and then they brought a comedian on. And it just didn't work. So, and, and I felt really sorry for the comedian, but it was, it was just completely inappropriate. We were not there expecting to hear comedy. Um, so I suppose that's where my question comes from. If the, if, the, if the audience is expecting comedy, are they more receptive than one who perhaps will... Um, yeah, yeah. So, so basically your, your uh, Walmart, ma- Walmart man was business. Yes. You know, it's like, yes. you know, debt like and loss. That's, yes. that's, that's, your, uh, that's your Walmart man. Yep. And now here's the comic. Yes. Yeah. Um, it just didn't work. No. no. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. Going to. It, it, it does. I mean, it, it's actually a it's actually a, a dichotomy there because what happens is if you go to a comedy club, they used to wedge comics on. Like you'd have like twelve, thirteen comics on the bill, and all the best well in the world if you went on twelfth or thirteenth, no one was listening to you anymore. Yeah. And no one cared. Going into a comedy club, and you're expecting comics, but you just want to make sure that the bill is not too long. Mm. Otherwise, you know, you, everyone's tired and no, no one cares. Yeah. Um, so, the, in a way, the best thing is to have a variety club, and it goes back to that whole thing, which has been reintroduced. Really, I mean, when I again, when I was gigging, it was they were really hardcore um, comedy clubs. So you didn't have bands. You didn't have variety acts or you know any any kind of variation to it it would just be comic after comic which i think they realized isn't such a good thing mm. um especially if it's a tryout night as well because it's very much a curate's sake you never quite know what you're going to get and if you're a bad comic you tie your audience out very quickly right. and they're not they don't they can't get back onto that high again um so yeah you have to be careful but yeah it's it's good to know the audience is expecting comedy it's, it's always a good sign. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah, yeah, we're going to tell you some jokes. That must have been awful for that comic. How did he do? Badly. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think he, he eventually acknowledged that this kind of <laughs> wasn't sort of, you know, probably appropriate. And, and but yeah, I just... It, and, and, I don't, and I don't think we, you know, the, there hadn't been a running order for the night that said, you know, and after pudding, we'll have comedy. Um, <laughs> and it just... It just yeah, so everybody sort of looked around thinking, really? Oh, okay then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that just didn't work. Yeah, back to you. I mean, what, what were your highs? What, looking, looking back now, what... Oh, that's a very good question. Well, and this is kind of where I... I bet just... you can tell me your woes much better than you can tell me your highs, because most people can. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. you remember, you remember the, the, when you, as you walk off to the sound of your own footsteps a lot you know that's that kind of, um i think i think the highs were that i think they're just when you feel like you've nailed it you've done it mm. you've had a really good gig um i do remember one of the lows was um <laughs> a guy well, i used to compare this, this well i don't know if it's a low or not because i'm never quite sure what happened there's those this, I was comparing this club. It was, it was called Tatty Bogles, and it didn't start until twelve o'clock in the because in it's all for late night workers, so yeah. th- people in theatre or because all in the middle of so it's the middle in the Soho. It's just just off Carnaby Street, yeah. and um, uh, it was a hard club because a lot of people were quite drunk by that time or they're quite hard nosed or whatever, and um, 
I'd, I'd seen this, this young guy uh, at this comedy club and he was brilliant. He, had, he, he was really great. I mean, like he was 18 and he was funny. So, you know, it's much better than I was. Um, and he had this, this ream of gags, which are great. Anyway, so I said, did you come to this club called Tatey Bay? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come down. Anyway. And um, he stood up on stage. And I think because he was 18, it was specifically, you know, these people look, look at this young guy and think, oh, I'm not going to laugh. I don't care how funny he is. I'm not going to laugh. You know, and um, he did his gags, two or three opening gags, and no one laughed. And he, like, he was just like, it was silent. And in this room, when it, there was silence, it was like, you could tell it was silent. There wasn't things going on in the background. It was everyone was just like, not saying anything. And he just looked out of the audience and he had his microphone. I was standing by the bar. His microphone said, oh, this has been my dream. I've always wanted to be a stand-up comic and now you've ruined it. And he just dropped the microphone and disappeared into the night. I was like, but I should, but I can't. I've got to go and pick up the microphone. And so it's, I, I never, to this day, I never knew whether he was being serious or, or was it just, I think it was just a joke. You know, that's what I keep telling myself. I, I never, and at the same place, it was, it was a bizarre, I, I I always remember this, this, this one comic, he's getting heckled by this, 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 um, this girl down the, down the front, she's quite drunk, and he ended up having an argument, like literally having an argument. He had the microphone, and, his, and he put the microphone down and got off the stage <laughs> and sat next to her, and they started arguing with each other. And it, was a, it, was a, it was a bizarre club, but fantastic. And I always remember the manager said, Look, so if you want to do comedy down here, uh, you can't talk about the royal family, you can't talk about sex, and you can't talk about politics. Uh, and I kind of say... Those things a bit. There's nothing else to talk about. <laughs> so, so, um, but it was great. It was a, it was a very interesting time, and, a good, and it was a good place to, to learn your trade, really. Mm. Yeah. Hard, yeah. But hard. Hard. Hard, but good. <laughs> yes. And what brought the comedy career... To an end. Um, I got offered another job, basically. Right. So, easy, as I said, to just go back on what I was saying, that I'm, I'm not a natural comic. I'm not, I'm, I think, out of anything, I'm better at writing and writing mm. gags. Um, and I'm not one of these people that can just, you know, I said, just conjure a joke out of anything mm. and make it sound funny. Um, and I ended up writing, I was writing gags for other comics, mm. and that's, that's kind of what was happening. Um, and then I was writing... Um, I'd write some link lines for a singer called Peter Straker, who was doing Pizza on the Park. They were kind of satirical, really blue, kind of late-night jokes, because it's that kind of thing. Some friends came to see him do his, his show, and, and they were producers. They, they listened to the, the songs and how, how great he is, because he's a great performer, and listened to these really blue, rude jokes, you know, that were a little bit of a juxtaposed to these wonderful songs. And uh, they said at the end, so who wrote, who wrote the script for, for you tonight? And he said, oh, well, Ben, and he's here tonight if you want to meet him. You know. And he said, oh, well, great. So he came over and said, we loved your script. Have you ever thought about writing for children's television? I'm thinking, what kind of children's television <laughs> is this? That's Sue and Martin Gates, who wrote and produced all kinds of children's series. And we got them really well and you know, chatted. And, and, and they gave me my first commission to write for telly. Uh, they took a chance, really. Obviously, the first draft was a bit blue and rude, and they said, could you tone that down a little bit? Um, but <laughs> so what, what age group was this for? It was for preschool. No. They really changed my career, really, and I, I, I'm forever indebted to them because they took a risk. You got paid more money, 
and you didn't have to leave your house and you didn't have to get things thrown at you. So I was thinking, this is much better. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> I like this a lot. That's how I started down, down that right. route for writing for television, really. Mm. And writing, obviously, last year here at the Stables, you had your, your first play staged, Whiskey and Soda. Yeah. Do you see yourself doing more of that in the future? Or? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, all through, the, from there, I've, I've, I sort of became a, a gun for hire, if you like. So wrote all kinds of different things, all kinds of different series, all different you know, live action stuff, all, all kinds of different um, bits and pieces. Um, but I think what happens when you, when you get on that sort of merry-go-round of, of being uh, a gun for hire, you don't ever get an opportunity to write for yourself. In, in my heart, the whole point of writing is, is to write what you want to write. And so I kind of pull myself away from doing freelance stuff and, and just uh, I'm going to concentrate on my own stuff and, and try and get that stuff, which is much more difficult to get on because you and obviously I enter this play into, into the, the competition, the writing competition here, and obviously Whiskey and Soda happen. And, and uh, so it's kind of flowered from there. Obviously, I've, I've got other plays that, uh, that are on and, and I'm writing the uh, Christmas Carol, the, the show for 2023 for Christmas for here, yeah. which would be which has come along really nicely actually. I think, I think it'd be a fantastic show, mm. a really interesting show, really great for family. Yeah. And, and then yeah, and writing lots of other stuff. And whiskey and soda is being put on in Florida in, in 2024 in in March. I think it's March April time. And we're looking to do something with it in town. But it's much more difficult in in London and Britain to get things mm. on than it is. There's not so much opportunity in, yeah. in the country. It's very difficult. Yeah. Is a a great play, and but I think my favourite part of that was talking to you beforehand, mm. and expecting there to be some great piece of inspiration as to where the story came from. But yeah, yes, it, it, it was a drunken night out. It was a drunken night out. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you can see exactly where that kind of idea comes from in, yeah. in one of those those conversations. I, I think you know if you overthink something and think, all right, I need I need a subject for a really good play. What's I think I think you're hiding to nothing really. I think it's got to come organically, and yep. you know, and it goes back to the, actually what you were asking: how do you tell whether something's a good joke or not? I, th- I think if it makes you interested and makes you laugh, mm. or you think, oh, that'd be a really interesting. It doesn't matter because in the end, uh, if no one else likes it, at least you enjoyed it. Yeah. So yeah. At, least at least you've intend- entertained yourself. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer at laughing at your own jokes. Um, because uh, it can be very lonely if you don't, especially on stage. You can now find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Stables Theatre Hastings. Then, if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review, and that way you'll be helping other people find our growing catalogue of podcasts. If you want to book tickets for the Stables Theatre, call the box office on 01424 423 221 or go to stablestheatre.co.uk.